Tonight is uh, October 7th, 2015. The, the title of tonight's sermon is Favor Ain't Fair. Favor Ain't Fair. I had a friend of mine and that was, their, that was always their comment was, Favor Ain't Fair. Um, meaning that they were you know, praying to God for some act of His favor upon them. So it usually looked like, I was praying... And I got the close parking spot at the mall. <laughs> Favor ain't fair, you know. Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of talk about what that looks like tonight. What does it look like to walk in God's favor? Uh, we are a group of people who walk in God's favor. But what does that really look like? What does it mean to us? Um, I doubt that it means what my friend meant. And she was being silly. There was nothing hard-hearted about what she was saying. She was just, you know, any... What she was trying to do was be thankful, and anytime anything good happened, she was trying to be very thankful about it. So I'm not, I'm not knocking my friend, I'm not knocking the statement. Let's turn to James chapter 1 and take a look at a few people um, who had God's favor and what happened in their lives. So James chapter 1. It's pretty good. James chapter 1. And let's just start in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Huh. Interesting. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. One of my favorite parts of that little verse right there is it will be given to him without finding fault. Isn't that neat? Hey, Lord, I'm lacking. Lord, I just lack wisdom. I need your wisdom, mighty God. I need your wisdom in my life. And God says, without finding fault, he'll give it to you. It, don't, we, don't we have a fear of that when we go to somebody, hey... Um, Mandy, I need your help. What's the fear? Well, I'm going to somehow not be worthy in her eyes because I'm lacking in something. There's this fear to go to people. God has never intended to be that way with us. He's saying, without finding fault. Um, And it will be given to him. Verse 6, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Is that easier said than done or not? Right? It's easy to believe and not doubt if God answers immediately. It's easy when God answers before you even ask. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. Anytime that it takes more than about five minutes in my life, sometimes I can, if I'm not careful, I might start to doubt. But the Bible says here, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Wow. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And all he does. Look at verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Um, I had the privilege of speaking with um, the new president of the company that I work for. The national president. I had a chance to speak with him today. Um, We had a phone conference and so we talked. I think he's somewhere in Orlando right now and he'll be back up in Dallas. And he's just traveling around meeting different people and he wanted to call me. So we were talking. And uh, we started talking about you guys. It's like, I hear you're a pastor. Yes, sir. Let me, let me tell you about my church. Um, we're, you know, on a great, 
great Sunday. We're like 125 strong. We're like killing it. We are killing it. And I said, and I love my people. And let me explain to you some of the things that go on. Because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to raise up people who can actually make an impact for the kingdom. Whether they are um, ministerial in mind or whether they are not. We're all going to pretend like we're ministers here. We're all going to make an impact for the kingdom regardless of what God's specific path for us is. So I say we try to judge ourselves not on how many we can seat, but on how many we can send. And so, so the president of the company, he just, he just went dead silent. Hello? <laughs> Hello? You still there, Pete? Pete, you there? He's like, uh, that may be the most incredible thing that I've ever heard. I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Love my church, right? The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. I told, uh, part of the discussion was, hey, our church... We could do uh, five things by this Sunday, and we can. There are mechanisms that are in this world that we can use and grow a church. Let's just say we can grow the numbers. I'm not sure that you grow a church. You know how you know how big this church should be, however big that we can effectively disciple the people in it. Amen. That's it. Amen. Shouldn't be any bigger than that. What, what a great thing. When I look at this verse, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. In other words, the way that the world looks at things is exactly opposite of the way that we're supposed to look at things. We're supposed to count it pure joy when we come to various kinds of trials and temptations. We're supposed to actually think that it's God's favor upon us. We encounter struggles because we know that he gets to prove himself in our lives. We get to show him what our heart really is. And he starts to work things out in us. Not because um, we, have a, we have a tendency sometimes to judge things before they're due. Um, if you, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a story on Gabe real quick. When he was younger, we started uh, the ever popular getting him to cut grass. Right? And... Gabe is wonderful in a lot of things. And um, I would get so frustrated with him about cutting grass because it was the most arbitrary, <laughs> like, are you trying to write your name in the grass with the cut part? What are we doing here? Why not just, you know, my little orderly self. I was like, why not just back and forth? I learned that if I tried to judge it too soon, I would get very, very frustrated. By the end of it, it, it would, he, whatever he did, he worked it out. Took him about six hours. He went over it 47 times. But it was done. Sometimes you're trying to judge our path in the Lord, and you're trying to judge it before you get to the right mile marker. Uh, if you go get your hair cut, if you look at it at the wrong moment, you're going to be really, really freaked out. <laughs> ah! Just give it a minute. It'll be all right. Let us work through what's going on. In your life, let's not try to judge things before the appointed time. Let's presume that God is working on us. Let's allow Him to work on us the way that, we, that He needs to so that we don't look at it the way that the world does, who judges by everything by the external. How many people do you have? How much money do you have? What do you look like on the outside? Uh, my God never does it that way. He never does it that way. For the sun rises, verse 11, with 
uh, with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, its blossom fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed, highly favored, is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, everybody say stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to look at a story. We're going to kind of walk through the story of King Saul here. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I hope to be able to share with you just some things that God shared with me even this afternoon. hope that it encourages you. I hope that it blesses you. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the secondborn was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Yikes. How, <laughs> your legacy and your children, how did you like for that to be the case? And we know all that, that Samuel was, and we see this in his kids. And look what happened because he did not raise his own children correctly. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. This was not a secret. Everybody could see it. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Huh. When those of us who are in the house of the Lord, we don't do it right on our end, it causes people to want to seek after worldly ways to do things. They see us and go, well, it's not really working for them, so maybe we should go and look around us. Maybe we should find a good model. You know, I know, I know a great model for church growth. Let's talk about franchising. Let's talk about marketing. I, I don't want to talk about those things with you. Not in regards to church life. I want to see God move and let Him grow the body, the healthy, in the right way. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, verse 6, this displeased Samuel. Well, I'm sure it did. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. This is the Lord speaking. Verse 8, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. The next 10 verses or so, he does exactly that. He explains to them what a king will do. You want a king? Well, this is what a king does. He takes the best of the land. He takes part of your produce. He goes on and on. And then in verse... Um, Verse 18, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. Why? Because you owe homage to the king. And he's going to take stuff from you because you said he's the king. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. He's going to give you the king that you're desiring. And when you ask God to take it away, he's going to go, nope, you asked for this. But the, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. Isn't that the opposite of what the people of God are supposed to be? We want to be like everybody else. We want to blend in. God was saying, I want a distinct people. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be unlike any other people group in the world. 
Verse 20 says, Then we will, they wanted to be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Wasn't God doing that for them? Wasn't He the one that was going before them? But we, but we really want to be able to see what's going on. We want to be able to know who it is that's leading us. Verse 21, When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. Then the Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Wow. Be careful what we ask for, right? We just might get what we ask for. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone go back to his town. Skip ahead in this process and look at verse, uh, in chapter 9 and verse 15. Samuel had found Saul. Saul was looking for donkeys that his, father, that his father had lost, that the property had lost. He was looking for them. He was searching for them. Went from town to town. Probably about a three-day journey. He comes in and they say, hey, by the way, there's a seer in town. There's a prophet here. While we're here, let's go see if the prophet can help us find the donkeys. It's amazing how God uses each and every circumstance, if we allow Him, to lead us exactly where we need to get to. They were not looking for this, and yet this is what God provided for them. In verse 15, so Saul is about, he's about to, he's looking for Samuel the prophet. Verse 15 says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. (laughs) He's looking for some donkeys. God has a different plan for this guy. Anoint him leader over my people. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. This is incredible. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them, they have been found. Don't you love it when prophecy comes in? He didn't even get to talk to him about the donkeys. He was like, oh yeah, by the way, the whole reason you thought you were on this journey, it's already been taken care of. Oh, I love that. I love that about the Lord. Um... And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Well, that's kind of an interesting statement. Has somebody ever just blown you away in what they said? They come with a normal greeting and then they kind of hit you with something deep. He's like, by the way, your donkeys are taken care of and all of Israel wants to pay attention to you. (laughs) Me? Saul answered, I am a Benjamite. From the smallest tribe of Israel, and, and is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Uh, he would have had, Samuel would have had my attention right there. <laughs> I do not understand what you're saying to me. Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about 30 in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave to you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the leg with what was on it, and set it in front of Saul. Not only am I ready for you, Saul, I actually have, I had a particular cut of meat that I was saving for you. Amen. Barbecue, I saved the best piece for you. Oh, yeah. 
So the cook set the leg with what was on it and, and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here's what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion. Hey, folks, if you need provision, if you need something in life, can I encourage you that God can set it aside for you anytime that He needs to? Don't fret. Don't worry. He can just take care of you. He'll have it set aside for you. Thomas said, I have invited guests, and Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Saul had a servant. Hey, why don't you go ahead and send him on? I need to talk to you privately for just a bit. Got one little thing I need to talk to you about. Right? Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him. You guys have friends that, are, that make you feel good when they see you? Like how they respond to you? Just somebody who's so full of joy. My daughter Anna does that for me. Daddy! Daddy! Hey! Catch me! She always says, catch me. She'll just take off running. I'm like, I got stuff in my hands. Wait. No! Right? I love that, man. How can you not feel good as a parent? When, you're, when you've got a, a small child and they just light up when they see you. Ah, there's nothing like it. When, you, when your spouse comes in and, oh, it's so good to see you. That favor that's there. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him. <laughs> Never, very rarely in the Bible are kisses about um, something that overly romantic. They're usually about favor. They're usually about some type of, of I, um, I approve of you, I favor you. He poured oil on Samuel and then he kissed him. A sign that God Himself has favored him. That God has kissed His life with His presence. This oil that's there. This double sign of, hey, let there be, everything be established by two or more witnesses. He's giving a double witness. He's giving both parts of it right there on the spot and saying, Saul, this is an important thing that I'm doing for you. Understand that God's presence and His touch is right here in your life. Has not the Lord anointed you leader over His inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men. So this anointing word, He's anointed him with oil. It's number 4886 in the Old Testament. Massa, M-A-S-A-H. There's an anointing that's there. I'm just going to talk through a few of these. Here are some things in the Old Testament. There's a lot of things that actually could be anointed. In Isaiah chapter 21, verse 5, I'm just going to give it to you. You can look it up later. It talks about how you anoint your shield with oil. Wooden shield. Something like that, and they would have a piece of leather over the top. Why? So that when the fiery arts of the enemy could come in, if you're anointed with oil, God bless you, it would put out it could put out the fire. It wouldn't ignite your shield. It would allow you to stand firm. So it talks about anointing your shield with oil. Huh. In Exodus chapter 40, 
it talks about anointing the items for the temple. It literally said, anoint it all. Anoint everything that's in there. I want you to turn to this one. Turn to uh, Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. And verse 41. Actually, let's back up to 39 so it's a little bit more in context. Exodus chapter 28, verse 39. It says this, Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes, and headbands for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. Yes, there are shields that we can anoint. Yes, there are things that we can anoint. Amen. But God's anointing is designed to be carried for people. And in this case, He's anointing the priests. Let's turn to um, 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 16. Go to verse 15. 1 Kings 19, 15, and 16 says this, The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah. You see in this where he is anointing, we saw in Exodus where he's anointing a priest. You see here that they're anointing kings and prophets. Prophets, priests, and kings is exactly what the role that Jesus Christ fulfilled. When we see Him come, we see Him fulfill all three roles. Turn to Psalms chapter 89. Psalm chapter 89 and verse 17 says, For their glory and their strength, and by your favor you exalt your horn. Uh, in other translations there it says that you want your horn of oil. There's, a, there's an indication of an anointing there um, upon David. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel. We're going to camp out here for just a little while. Let's take a look. So there's an anointing throughout the Old Testament. We see through the law of the prophets and the writings that there's an anointing that God intends to give. His favor that He pours out. Now we're back to 1 Samuel chapter 10 and look in verse 2. It says this, When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? In this case, Samuel is going to give three things. He's going to give three scenarios that are going to happen that day. The prophet is prophesying very specifically about what's to come. But I think when we see it, we're going to see some things that we can get about our lives, that we can understand about what God does for us. In this first case, those donkeys that he was looking for, that Samuel already told him had been found, it was still thoughts when you read through that Saul had, he was still thinking these thoughts. He had actually said in previous verses, pretty soon my dad's going to start not worrying about the donkeys and he's going to worry about us. He'd been gone for three or four days now. And this is exactly 
what Samuel says to Saul. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb. They will say to you, the donkeys you look, have set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? What I wrote down here was that God hears our words. He hears our thoughts. Those things that have bothered us, let me put it this way, God can solve our problems. One of the things that He is showing here to Saul to set him as king is saying, look, those things that you've worried about, those problems that you've had, I'm already taking care of them. I heard what you thought. I heard what you said out loud to your servant. I understand the situation that you're in. All those things are not lost on our God. And he's saying, I'm already taking care of them to solve your problems. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men, everybody say three men, going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. Now this is very specific stuff, right? So you can meet these three guys, they're going to be carrying this, they're going to be wearing this, they're going to look like this, they're going to do this, and you're going to do this. Okay? Of course, we know that all these things are going to happen exactly in this order. But we see at first that God says, I'm going to meet and I'm going to take care of your problems. Here, he says, look, the God who is coming close to you, he's going to supply all of your needs. But, but look at the gifts here. Let's just take a look for a second. What are they? Goats, bread, and wine. In other words... A sacrifice for your sin is going to be made available for you. And then so what can you have? So that you can have bread and wine. Here, I'm, I'm presenting you everything that you need. I'm going to supply all your needs according to my riches and glory. I've made a way for you to sacrifice so that you can have communion. This is a sign of God Himself drawing close to Saul in this very, very um, physical pragmatic, practical way. You're going to walk here and you're going to see these people, but we see very easily goats, almost like it's from Leviticus 16, where we see there's multiple goats here. Why? Once, so that one can be the Azazel, one can be a sacrifice for sin. We see the, I mean, we're seeing these pictures here, even in the coronation of their king. Why? So that you can get to the bread and to the wine. Who are the people in Joseph's life? In prison? There was the cupbearer and the baker. There was the bread and there was the wine. Right? And if you've been with us on Monday nights, you know that that is very much a part of, uh, of our studies. And I encourage you, if you don't come on Mondays, come on Mondays. And your commercial for the day. There you go. Verse 5. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. Interesting that he makes note of that. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets. Everybody say, profession of prophets. Coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. Yeah, they will. Just some random group of people walking down the street prophesying. Who are they prophesying to? I don't know, but they're prophesying. To each other, random people walking by. I love it. Look at what verse 6 says. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power. Everybody say, in power. in power. And you will prophesy with them. 
they're just walking along and God's going to hit you in such a way that you'll just go ahead and join in, join in on the party, right? You will prophesy with them. And look at the next phrase. This is one of, my, one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. It says, and you will be changed into a different person. My goodness, I love that. Once these signs are fulfilled, do what your hand finds to do. Why? For God is with you. So here are three signs that I'm going to give you that today I'm going to, I'm going to hear and I'm going to solve your problems. I'm going to provide and take care of all your needs so that we can come close to each other. And I'm going to empower you with the very Spirit of God. In succession. This is exactly what happens. And actually, Saul, it's amazing. As crazy as his life gets, they still say, um, is not Saul one of the prophets? There was a, a phrase that, that gets played over and over like, he's actually known for prophesying. The Spirit changed him. Isn't that what we want for people? Our missionary and his wife in Suriname, didn't we say, da 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 da, and he will change you? You need this empowerment. You don't have to do this by yourself. God will take care of your problems. He'll supply all your needs because He wants to come close. And He will empower you with His Spirit. Why would you not want any one of those? If God has made it available for you, if He says, if you just walk this out, this is yours. This is yours, Saul. But we're going to look, and Saul is actually going to break covenant with God in each of these three areas. So the next few chapters is this. If I'm skipping a chapter, it's because it talks about someone else. But the next three places that it talks about Saul, he is going to break fellowship with God as the, the one who can take care of our problems. He's going to break fellowship with God as the one who supplies our needs because He wants to get close to us. He's going to break fellowship with God in walking under the power of a Spirit. Huh. Take a look in 1 Samuel Chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 5 says this, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands of the seashore. They went on and camped at Michmash, east of beth when the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical. <laughs> That's to put it mildly, right? There's a whole lot of them and not enough of us. There's a whole lot of my month left and not enough money to make it there. You know, whatever it is. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they did what all brave warriors do. They hid in caves <laughs> and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Now, I love the list there because if you just take a second, it's like, imagine the most scared ran to the caves. And once that was filled up, the other guys were like, well, uh, here's some bushes and I'm going to go jump in. Right? Maybe if I just stand here, no one will see me. You know, after a while, you're like, I, I, I love the, the progression here. Caves, thickets, rocks, pits, cisterns, behind their mama's skirt, I don't know, something. Verse 7, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. <laughs> Just swimming across the river. <laughs> we are scared! Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. 
He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. Take note of the situation here. It's one thing to be afraid. People are starting to bug out. They're, not, they're no longer hiding in the cisterns and in the caves. They're just like, hey, I'm gone. I'm out of here. You're on your own, big guy. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. So busted. Remember when you were a kid and you were doing something like your mom or dad walked in? You're like, I didn't do it. I mean, you, you still got the chocolate on your mouth from eating the cookie. I mean, like, we can see this. Just as he finished. So in other words, maybe Samuel came exactly when he said he was going to come. Making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. <laughs> what have you done? said Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw, everybody say, I saw. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, everybody say, I thought. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought for the Lord's favor. So I felt, everybody say, I felt, compelled to offer the burnt offering. Um, I'm reminded of the parable of the talents. When the master comes back and starts addressing those with the talents, the first man who had five, he said, Master, you. He, the first words that out of their mouth were, we understand who you are, Master, and so I did this. Second one does the same thing. The third one says, yeah, I thought this. The focus, you could see from the words of their mouth that it was coming from the meditation of their heart, and it was not acceptable to God because it was only focused on them. Saul just says, hey, look, I had a problem, right, the donkeys, it's referring back to that. I had a problem, and I wasn't sure that it was going to get taken care of, so I decided to do it in my own strength. Look at what verse 13 says. You acted foolishly. And listen to the punishment of this. In our culture, we kind of lose the importance of what's being said here. Stay with me. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, listen to this phrase, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Right? We know that that's what the Lord does for David, yes? The intent that God has was to set up a king and establish his throne for forever. Because Saul decided to let fear creep in and say, I'm not sure, I'm not really sure that God can provide for me, that he can take care of my problems, so I'm just going to fix it on my own. I'm going to take it by my own hand and try to fix it. What a foolish thing to do. But now, verse 14, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Wow, we know that he finds him, right? And appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Hold your place there in Samuel. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and start in verse 27.
It says this, Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and then tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you? O you of little faith. Isn't that exactly what Saul was demonstrating? Little faith. God will take care of the flowers of the field. You don't think He'll take care of you? You don't think He can handle the problems that you have? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel. Let's go to 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel 15, and starting in verse 1, it says this, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over the, his people Israel. <clears throat> so listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Wow. I promise you. What a great word, waylaid, right? It's a great word. You took advantage of these people at their lowest and weakest point and you waylaid them. Um, it, it's, it's popular among some folks to watch fail videos. Go on YouTube and watch fail videos, right? And there's these fight videos, and you see people getting waylaid. Not that I'm endorsing this. I'm just saying it happens. I'm just saying. People getting waylaid. It's like, oh! There was one that I showed. Um, I mean, that someone showed. Uh, Pastor Matt the other day, it was this, this kid, and he was a bigger kid, but this smaller, I think it was from Australia, actually, this little, this little guy was picking on the big guy and just walking up and pow, punching him right in the face. And the big guy was like, whoa. The little guy, <laughs> pow, 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 mean, just talking mean to him. The big guy kind of finally has enough. He, the little guy was waylaying the big guy. And he was just taking it and taking it and taking it. And then all of a sudden, something switched in the big boy. <laughs> it's terrible. In like an awesome kind of way. He picked up the little dude, just rah, picked him up. <laughs> the guy walks up and literally does one of these. The, the young guy kind of walks off going, hey, um, there may be some folks who are trying to waylay you. But understand that God is always, He's going to keep, He's keeping track of those things. That's not something that we have to go and do and find retribution on our own. <laughs> Big kid, in this case, we're going to symbolize that it was good and not, you know, God, we don't have to take care of these things on our own. We don't have to slam, body slam somebody to make up for injustice that they're doing to us because we have a God who's seeing these things. Verse 3. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Sounds pretty uh, total in what God wants to do here. You waylaid my people? Um, it's time. We're going to go ahead and settle up on that score. All right, Saul, I want you to go in there and I want you to demolish everything. And you guys know this story. Saul does not do that. Verse 10 then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. 
Why did God provide the goat and the bread and the wine so that there could be communion one with another? What is Saul doing here? He's pushing away from the fact that God can supply anything, take them all out. Well, we're going to keep the best. We keep the best sheep and the best cattle. Why? Well, because it adds to our supply. God's saying, you don't understand. I want fellowship with you. I'll take care of all of that if you come close to me. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. Say what? In, verse 13, in chapter 13, we saw it. Then it talks about Jonathan. And then we're in chapter 15. And we see he's already setting up monuments to himself. Does that someone, sound like someone who's in close communion with God? Sounds the opposite of that. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. <laughs> I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Just outright defiance of God. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul tries to explain, explain his way through it. You guys know the story. He keeps saying how he obeyed the Lord when he clearly did not. You know, when we fall out of communion with God, we either don't realize that we're not doing what He said, or we realize it and we just lie about it. I'm doing exactly what God says. Well, you've got to get all up against me. It's exactly, that sounded just like Saul. What is this bleeding of sheep? That, why, is this, why is there cattle lowing? I told you to destroy everything. Well, I can hear the evidence against you. I'm not stupid. I can see what's going on. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Have we ever talked to somebody in a prison and they did that to us? Have we ever talked to somebody as our neighbors and they're like, man, I'm totally good with God. What? You're living in filth. How is that? I'm good. Verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Even for us, folks. Even for us. The Lord may call you to sacrifice something, but then you're obeying. It's not the sacrifice even that He's after. He's after your obedience. Obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than, that, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. You realize what it said in chapter 13, right? I wanted to establish your throne forever. Well, he's saying it's no longer forever. By the time we get to 15, he's saying, no long, now is it no longer forever I'm telling you that yours is coming to an end. There's this progression that's here. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. <laughs> After that, he finally came clean. And we see, I violated the, the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people. Everybody say, afraid of the people. When you walk in fear, I promise you that you will always do the opposite of what God is instructing you to do. Always. When you act in fear, it causes your fears to come true. That's what people don't understand. If you have a fear that you're going to be alone, what do you do? You act in a way that causes people to not want to be around you. 
because you're afraid. So what do you do? However it is that you respond to it, you cling to people more and they're like, whoa, whoa, not healthy. Our fear makes the fear come true. So that's why we're supposed to always operate in faith. Lord, I'm, I'm afraid and I'm putting those things aside and I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I know that you meet my problems. I know that you supply my needs so that we can have communion and I know that you'll empower me. I'm going to stand in that and not let fear distort what I do with my life because it will always put me in the wrong place. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And it says this, verse 1. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. A lot of beautiful symbolism there, but we'll keep going for, for time's sake. Verse 5, Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang... Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It's an interesting song to present before your king, right? <laughs> um, one, of the most, one of my most favorite things about visiting Africa was that we would go into these villages and people would greet us with song. People would come out and they would have a whole song and dance. And there was this, the only way I can explain it is there was this sound, this sound of Africa. It just sounded a certain way, and I can't really explain it. I definitely can't duplicate it by myself. But they would sing. All the kids, most of the adults, they would gather together, and they would have an entire performance that they would do for you. And they would start dancing, and it was so joyful because they were glad that you were there. As an honor to you being there, and you're like, I don't know what you're saying. And someone would translate, and we welcome you, or praise be to God for you being here. And, you know, it was just, it was just this beautiful things that were going on. <laughs> Be interested if they were saying, yes, we're glad you people are here. However, the group before you was much better than you. <laughs> they were so much better looking than you guys. So much more talented. Thank you, I think. They danced. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. How do you do when someone attributes greater worth to someone else than you? How do you do when someone compliments someone in a grander way than they've complimented you? How is your heart in those situations? Do we do like Saul here and go, man, I'm... What? I can do that too. Are you worried about proving what you can or can't do? Does it bother you? Can you celebrate that the person is getting encouragement? Or does it gall you? Because they're receiving credit that you desire. What more can he get but the kingdom? Verse 9, And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. 
the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. So he's prophesying. An evil spirit from God comes upon him. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. You're there, right? So David is playing a harp. Ring, ring, ring. Beautifully, I'm sure. There's prophecy going on. Hey man, while prophecy's going on, you pick up a spear and chunk it. I will pin him to the wall. <laughs> Little matrix action something. I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going on here. He's playing. Saul tries to literally pin him to the wall. Look at verse 12. Saul was afraid. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he had left Saul. Wow. Psalms 51 comes to mind. (laughs) Lord, cast me not away. Don't remove your presence from me, Lord. We see an example of here. And first, back earlier we saw that he was with a group of men prophesying that the Spirit of God came upon him and changed him. And we see just a simple few stories later, a few chapters later, that now the glory of God has been departed from him. So the same one that was there to, to solve his problems, to meet his needs and have communion, and to empower him, now Saul has failed in every single area. And what were they all based on? They were all based in fear. They were all based on him fearing what was going on, and so him deciding that he was going to take control of it and do it however he felt best. Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Are y'all with me? Thank you, Emmeline. Second Timothy. She's with me. That's good. Chapter 1. We read this the other night. It says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear. If we are timid to do the things that the Lord has told us to do, if we are afraid, we can clearly know that that is not from the Lord and we see what it did to Saul's life. It should be a warning for us. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. What I never thought about before until this afternoon when I was reading through this, was that these are the same three things just in the opposite order from what Saul was given to pronounce him as king. Power. Saul was empowered to prophesy. The Spirit of God came upon him and he was changed. Love. God was supplying their every need and he wanted communion. He wanted closeness and intimacy with him. Self-discipline, the ability to see the problem that you have going on and have a God solution to your problem. It's the same thing. God didn't give us the spirit of timidity. He gave us, He gave us in the New Testament the same thing that He gave us in the Old Testament. He gave us exactly what we need, that we need power, love, and a sound mind. 
I love the fact that these, I, I've never thought, I've never seen that before. I've never connected these kind of dots. Turn to Romans chapter 8. I hope this is making sense to you. Romans chapter 8. Start in verse 1. Romans 8, 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. God didn't send Jesus as a sinful man. He sent Him in the likeness of a sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. In my Bible, right beside this entire passage, I have Nabal and Abigail. Those who live, if you've been around here long enough, if you've been through the marriage counseling here, the marriage enrichment, you understand that there's a Nabal and an Abigail traits that we see, again, back in Samuel. But here I'm reminded of that, and it says, those who live according to that sinful nature, that Nabal way of life, have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, those Abigail traits that we encourage folks, if you don't know what we're talking about, get with one of the pastors and we can help you understand better about that. The mind of this, um, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on the, what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. That's pretty clear. In case you were wondering, if you hang out in that realm, the only thing that you're going to get out of it, you're going to sow these seeds and the only thing that you're going to get out of it is death. If you stay in your natural, fleshly thoughts, the only thing that can come from that is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is what? Read it. Life and peace. Man. Wow. That's what I want. I want to live in life and peace. And we understand that peace is what? It's in being in the right order. It's having shalom. It's understanding that God flows down. I'm thinking of the uh, passage, I think it's in Psalms 133 where it talks about how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like oil that flows down on Aaron's head, onto Aaron's beard, onto his, uh, the collar of his garment, however it says that. There's an order that when we get in right, we have life and peace. The Lord shared with me years ago. I was, I was meditating on Psalms 133 and that anointing that flowed down. <laughs> and I know this sounds silly, but I felt like God spoke it to my heart and said, if you're further down the chain, it was never my job. This is what he spoke to my heart. It is never your job to try to push the oil back up towards the head. That's not my job. My job is to get under the flow, to get in right shalom and let his anointing oil cover my life. In that case that I'm talking about, it was me trying to look at someone who was an authority in my life and I thought that I should tell them what to do. Just being honest. I was trying to push oil back up onto the head. I'm down here somewhere and trying to... That's not how this works. I said, oh, Lord, would you speak to them about that? 
Lord, maybe they don't see it. Lord, would you help and would you take care of that? Would you open an opportunity if you want me to say something? Because if you don't want me to say anything, all I'm going to do is pray about it. That's all I'm going to do. And God was convicting me that I was trying to get ready to say something up the chain. The problem wasn't even me saying it up the chain. It was my heart in the matter. I didn't actually believe that God could take care of it. I was afraid that somehow the God of all the universe would allow injustice to carry on. I went, huh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I want to be able to speak whenever you tell me to speak, to whomever you tell me to speak, but I understand your authority. I want to be a man who understands and walks in your authority. I trust you, Lord. I know that you can take care of this. Lord, would you take care of this? Lord, am I seeing this correctly? Lord, would you deal with this properly? And you know what God did? Within a matter of two weeks, the whole thing was fixed. And I didn't say a word. It's almost like God can supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory. Verse 6, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It's hostile. It's not tacit. It's not calm about it. It is hostile. It is anti-God. Ask our friends who go out to Montrose on Friday nights. It's not as if they're passive. Are they, Justin? They're not, hey, we're okay with you guys. They're hostile. The sinful mind is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. It's not even possible for that to happen. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. I wonder if there are errors in our lives that we're allowing to be controlled by the wrong nature. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as we wrap up. First Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 3.10 says this, By the grace of God given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no man can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If you're choosing to do it by the way that the Spirit instructs us, it's the gold, silver, and costly stones. The fire doesn't destroy those things, it just purifies them. It just makes them more glorious. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flame. I think one of my biggest fears in life is that I'm going to work as hard as I can 
guess one of my fleshly fears is that I will work and it will be in vain. That I'll do something and I'll work really hard because I'm going to go ahead and do it, but, but it won't count for anything. I don't mind working hard, but it better count. I'm just saying how my personality is. I will work as hard as I possibly can, but I don't want it to be negated. Don't give me busy work. I do not do well with busy work. I don't know what else to do, so why don't you just move that uh, stack of bricks from there to there? Okay, great. Amen. Okay, now what? Well, I want you to move that stack of bricks right back where it was. No, 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 no. Hang on. I don't want to work and give my all for the kingdom and realize that I've been doing it based on my own strength. I don't want to look like Saul and be able to prophesy and yet be doing things that are anti-God while he's prophesying. Wait, what? How is that even possible? I don't know. So maybe it's not about just the things that we can do. Maybe God is always examining our hearts and He will test our works by fire. And the good is going to remain and the other part will be burned up. God can take care of all your problems. He can supply all of your needs. He can provide the sacrifice and the communion for you. And He can empower you with your spirit, with His spirit. How are we doing on this? I know this is a midweek service, trying to do something that encourages us. I know we all have long days and sometimes longer nights around this church. But how are we doing? Are we walking in an attitude that is even unknowns to us? Is it like Saul? Or we're allowing fear to creep in and the reason that we make the decisions. That's the important part about Christianity that separates us from all others. We're not saying that the ends justify the means. We're not saying that as long as you do something, then it's okay that you can think the wrong thing. Our Savior says that your heart has to be right. That your motives have to be right. That your spirit has to be right. And it will produce right actions. So it's the both and of what He expects from us. Do we want? Yes, because our works will be tried by fire. Of course we want to do that. I want to show you by faith, my faith by my deeds. But if I'm doing all the greatest things in the world and I don't have the right heart about it, if there's fear at the basis of what I'm doing, then I cannot please God. No matter what my works look like, no matter how much I can please all of you, I cannot please my Father unless I am free from fear. Unless I am walking in exactly what He has for us. 